Well, good morning. It is good to see you all. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but if you're new, I'm Jamie, and I am also one of the pastors here. And today it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Amos, Amos chapter 6, Amos chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, please grab one from under the chair in front of you, and you will find Amos chapter 6 towards the middle of the Bible on page 768. If you're not familiar with how the Bible works, the chapter numbers are the big numbers and the verse numbers are the little numbers. We'll be reading the entire chapter today, but to go ahead and get started, uh, we're going to read verses 1 down to 7, and then I'm going to pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then uh, we'll get, get to work in this passage. should be around 45 minutes or so. Amos chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kelna and see and from there go down to Hamath, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Was their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to, you, to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David in, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you come now and help us by your, the power of your Holy Spirit to understand your word. As we read here, teach us. Teach us with your truth. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. When she learned that a poor harvest and rodents had brought about a shortage of bread in her kingdom and that her people were starving, the French queen Marie Antoinette reportedly said, let them eat cake. Now, there's a pretty good chance that Marie Antoinette never actually said that. But the story stuck because it served so well to illustrate how far removed the French aristocracy was from their citizens, and from real life. We have a similar situation here in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC. 
Under the reign of King Jeroboam II, Israel had expanded her borders. Israel's war-torn neighbors to the north meant that Jeroboam could advance upon their weakened state and bring great wealth into the kingdom. Their nobility took advantage of this and amassed great wealth for themselves. The poor, however, were neglected and got poorer. It may help to It may help us to understand Amos 6 if we were to set it in its kind of overarching setting in Scripture, in the full context of God's purpose. God is absolutely committed to the display of His own glory. The praise of God's glory is the ultimate goal of creation. It is the highest good in the universe. And God had chosen a people for Himself, and through those people, He would manifest His glory to the nations. Through a man called Moses, God gave instructions to Israel on how they were to live as His chosen people in order to accomplish His purposes. They were to live a God-centered life, living as God's righteous people would produce a just and peaceful society. The nations of the world would come and see the greatness of the one true God. Whenever Israel would lose a sense of her purpose, the Lord would remind her. He would send prophets to draw her back to himself and to restore them to their purpose. These prophets would warn that if she would continue in rebelling against God, then he would send judgments against them often in the form of her enemies. And whatever disaster would fall upon Israel, God would always preserve a remnant of His people for Himself. Much of the Old Testament of the Bible is taken up with this story. God's people reject the Lord, reject His purposes, and the Lord mercifully sends a prophet to warn them. They ignore that prophet, judgment comes, and then they repent. But then years later, they fall back into the same old rebellion. God grants mercy to them, sends another prophet to them, and the cycle continues. So the whole Bible could be summarized as God displaying displaying the glory of His grace in saving His people through His judgment. And in the 8th century BC, we are in the middle of one of those cycles. God remains committed as ever to the display of His glory through His chosen people. And His chosen people in her wealth and luxury had forgotten her purpose. Instead of living a God-centered life, they lived a self-centered life. And so the Lord sends Amos, a fig tree farming sheep herder from the south to warn them. Amos is a blue-collar prophet in Wranglers with a message to the social elites in Israel's northern kingdom. Four things to see in chapter 6. These four things will guide our time together in consideration of this chapter. Number one, Israel's indulgence becomes indifference. Israel's indulgence becomes indifference, which we'll see in verses 1 to 7. Number two, Israel's indifference turns into pride 
that Israel's indifference turns into pride, which we'll see verses 8 to 11. And then third, we will see that Israel's pride leads to injustice. Israel's pride leads to injustice in verses 12 to 14. We will end our time together considering how God's judgment against all of these things, the indifference, the pride, and the injustice, actually becomes Israel's salvation. That God's judgment becomes Israel's salvation. So that's how it's set up. Let's consider first how Israel's indulgence becomes Israel's indifference. Go back to verse 1 to 3 again. There we read that, Woe are those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. The name tells them to pass over to Kelna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and there go down to Gath of the Philistines. And he asked them, Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is your territory greater than their territory? You who put a far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. So he starts off by saying, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Zion, as we've already seen in this series, is a, a moniker for Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem in the south. Amos issues these woes to Jerusalem and to Samaria capital city of the northern kingdom. Remember, years prior, God's people had been split into two kingdoms, one in the north and one in the south. Samaria is the capital city in the northern kingdom. Samaria is probably where Amos is ministering. Samaria's topography made her a natural fortress. So Israel felt at ease with the security that was provided to her through her military strength. And Amos issues this sermon of woe to the notable men of the first of the nations. These were the upper class in Israel, those to whom power had been given, those to whom they could assign tax liabilities, they could control public works. Their influence would meant that they could, they could have a hand in the distribution of wealth in the kingdom. These were the people to whom all of Israel would come for justice, for governance. They're the first. Of all of the nations of the earth, God chose Israel to be his people, his nation, the first of the nations. And these notable people, these notable men, were the first of the first of the nations. And they had led God's people for selfish gain. And Amos calls them to look around, to Kelna and Hamath and Gath. These were foreign cities which had recently been, been brought underneath the, the, the influence and control of Israel and Judah. And so Amos asks them to consider, are you better than these cities? Is that why they are now under your control because you're so much better than them? These were great cities and they fell. Will you be that much different? In verse 3, Amos says, You feel secure in your money and you feel secure in your military. And so you, you put far away the day of disaster. You feel invincible. 
And we're the, we're the first of the nations. God chose us. We are global superpower. And Amos warns them and wakes them. He says, you think that you're pushing off the day of disaster. But by living selfishly, you're bringing that day near. Verse 4 to 6. He goes on, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Amos pictures God's people living in luxury, lying at ease while the kingdom of God is languishing. The rich, the nobles are seen as napping on their tempurpedics with their ivory inlays sprawled out on their comfortable couches, binging on Netflix. They eat lamb for lunch and veal cutlets for dinner. They sing silly songs and invent sounds on Pro Tools. They serve wine to one another in cereal bowls. They anoint themselves with the finest skincare products. This is opulence on another level. Hip-hop artists write songs about their lifestyle. What we need to see is that none of this is the problem. Living easy on soft couches with big screen TVs isn't why the Lord sent Amos to Israel. Israel had forgotten her purpose. Her money, her military had muddied her heart. Her riches had deceived her. Her luxuries had lulled her to sleep. Her indulgence gave way to indifference. These were the kind of people that the Apostle Paul would later write about and say, their God is their belly. And so Amish draws the bow and he aims it, not at their designer furniture, but at their heart. Verse 6 says, you have all of these things, but you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph was another name for Israel. You're not grieved over the ruin of of my people. The things Israel had consumed had consumed her. God had chosen Israel to reflect the glory of His grace, to proclaim the excellencies of His character to the nations of the world. And she'd given all of that up for a new pair of designer jeans. Their kingdom was in ruined. Their self-indulgence bred social indifference. 
which is too often the way, isn't it? The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon noted that a full belly can often lead to an empty heart. To the notable in Israel, the poor didn't matter. Just tell them to work harder if they don't have bread. Let them eat cake. The people's needs didn't matter. They used their influence for personal gain, not to serve God's people, not to protect God's people. So long before Nero played the fiddle, Israel played the harp. And in verse 7, we read the first of the first of the nations will be the first to be exiled. So we have to wonder, how does this happen? After all God had done for these people for so long, after all the blessings that He gave to His covenant people, after all the years of His faithfulness, they had His Word. How could they so completely lose sight of what's important. Well, the Lord Jesus told a parable in Mark chapter 4, and there he explains how they could lose sense of what's important and of their purpose. Jesus said, A man sowed seeds. Some of the seed fell along a path, birds came along and ate them up. Some seed fell among rocks. And they sprung up quickly. The sun came out, scorched them, and they didn't have root, so they withered and died. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns choked the little plant, and it proved unfruitful. Some seed fell on good soil, took root, and bore fruit. Jesus explains that the seed that fell among the thorns is like when people hear God's Word and receive God's Word, but to use Jesus' words, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the Word, and it proves unfruitful. Hear what the Lord is saying. It is not wrong to sleep in a nice bed, to enjoy good food, to enjoy nice things. The Bible says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. But we must be careful of the desires for those things. Elsewhere, the Lord taught us to take care and to be on our guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, this, this is about the heart. This is about what the heart desires. When my family and I moved here to Piqua, we had these beautiful blue, purplish plants that were 
woven into uh, our metal fence in our backyard called morning lorries. And those beautiful plants soon moved into our landscaping, and then from our landscaping into our garden. And they would wrap themselves around just anything that's not moving, and they'd choke out any other plant. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things are like morning glories in the garden of our soul. If we don't weed the garden, God's word will prove unfruitful in our lives. These competing desires will draw us away from our holy purpose. They will dull the sense of the urgency for global missions. They will cause us to become self-focused and make us indifferent toward the needs of our church family. I'd like to challenge you to something this week. Find a friend that you trust this week and ask them, do you find that I talk more about the things that interest me and pertain to me than I do about the things that interest others or pertain to others? Ask them, do you find that I talk more about myself than the things of God? I'll challenge you even further. Tell them what you earn. And tell them what you spend. And ask them to consider, do you find me to be a good steward of what God has gifted to me? Am I stewarding the resources the Lord has given me in order to advance the gospel? The Apostle Paul wrote, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen, making money is not a problem. It's biblical. It's the love of money that is so dangerous. Sometimes you'll hear folks say, if, if, I were, if I were rich, then I could just do so much more for the kingdom of God. But I'm afraid that person doesn't know their own heart very well. Be generous with what you have now. And God may be pleased to give you more. Well, this is exactly what happened in Israel. They had been deceived by their riches. They had forgotten their purpose. They had believed that they were invincible. And their indifference had turned into pride. Let's pick up reading in verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. 
I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say, Silence! We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Amos tells God's people what God thinks of their pride. He hates it. Israel had put her trust in her military fortifications. She'd become proud. There's no quicker way to set Almighty God against you than to be proud. For the Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The pride of man is offensive to God. It is antithetical to His purposes. For pride seeks the glory of man, but God seeks the glory of God. The self-made, the self-reliant man is a walking contradiction on his way to destruction. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm very glad you're here in church. I don't know what you put your trust in. I don't know where you find your sense of security. But I can tell you that if your sense of security is in anything, be it your power, your personal achievement, your performance, another person, it is not safe. There is only one safe thing to put your sense of security in, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Before destruction falls on your life, as it did here in Samaria, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved from the destruction that is to come. I won't tell you to go home and fix your life. You're, norm, you're, you're no more able to fix your life than you are able to put out a house fire with a squirt gun. I'm telling you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to put your hope in Him before you leave this room here today. Trust in Him. Find someone who looks like a regular. Ask them to go to lunch with you and tell you more about living for Jesus Christ. So the Lord swears by Himself that He will deliver prideful Samaria over to her enemies. He says that her devastation will be so sweeping, so swift, that it will surprise everyone. Verse 10 is a bit confusing, but it pictures a very gruesome reality that Israel's devastation will be so quick and so thorough that Israel won't even have time to bury her own dead. The few survivors left won't even call on the name of the Lord. After all, the Lord had become an enemy to them. To call on Him would be to invite more destruction. Rather than repenting of their sins, calling on the Lord for mercy, they ran from Him. It's a grisly scene. And the Lord promises that what once was a fortification will be left as rubble. 
fragments and bits are all that will be left of the strongholds of their luxury and their ease. It will be a foretaste of what will come on the last day where fragments and bits will be all that is left of the pride of man. So we have seen God's judgment on Israel's indifference. We've seen God's judgment on Israel's pride. And next we'll see how Israel's pride led to grave injustice and how God's judgment falls on that as well. Verses 12 to 14. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice and load a bar and say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lohmoth to the brook of the Arabah. Amos asks rhetorically, do horses run on rocks? Do you plow fields on rock mountains? Of course you don't. You would ruin your horses and break your plow. So then why do you play loose with God's word? That's even dumber. Israel had turned God's justice into poison, His righteousness into a bitter herb. In her ease, in her indulgence, God's people had forsaken God's purpose. They were supposed to care for the poor and for the oppressed. They were supposed to care for the weak and the vulnerable. This was meant to be a display of God's own character who Himself does these things. They were supposed to take in the foreigner and show hospitality to outsiders They're supposed to care for widows and orphans. Why? Because that's what God does. And they were his ambassadors. So when injustice occurred in her land, Israel was supposed to manage these courts to bring justice and righteousness to God's people. When wrong took place in the land, they were supposed to make it right because that's what God does. They were meant to display the glory of God's righteousness and judgment. But in Amos' day, these things were perverted and poisoned and turned sour. These people cared more for the things of the world than they did for the things of God. God's reputation didn't matter. God's glory didn't matter. God's mission didn't matter. What mattered was their conveniences. Lodabar and Carnaim were Assyrian cities that King Jeroboam had captured. And their nobles were boasting of this capture. Have we not in our own strength captured Carnaim by ourselves? The moment we find ourselves thinking that this, what I have, is mine, that I earned it with my own hard work, We ought to watch our step, for we are in danger. God tells Israel's nobles to hold up. Who who do you think you are? 
Who determines victory and defeat? Who raises up kings and brings them down? Who gives life to men and takes it? Is it you, Israel? So why do you boast in your own strength as if you were the one who accomplished this? And so to crush Israel in her pride and injustice, the Lord promises to raise up a nation against her. He says that they will oppress you from low Hamath, which is the northernmost part of their boundary lines, all the way down to the brook of Arabah, which is in the southernmost part of their boundary lines. And in just a few decades after Amos spoke these words, that's just what happened. The Assyrians invaded and carried away the rich and the noble, leaving Samaria in ruins. That was 2,700 years ago. And she has yet to recover from that devastation. The judgment of God fell on his people for her sins. And his judgment was devastating. And her judgment would foretell of a final judgment which would fall not on her ultimately, but on God Himself. God would reserve the final judgment of His people's sin for His own Son. God's people had not done what God had commanded them. And God's people had done what God had forbidden them. And they deserved his judgment. They deserved to be utterly destroyed. And the sober question that we must all ask after reading a chapter like Amos 6 is, are we much different? Can anyone in this room say that they have kept all that God has commanded them? Can anyone in this room say that they have not done anything God has forbidden them? Of course not. Perhaps we should read verse 2 again. Have a look at the evil in your day and ask yourself, are you much different? The kingdoms of this world have fallen. Are we much different? Have a look at the arrogant, self-righteous people that you know and ask yourself, how different are you really? You see, Amos 6 isn't addressing a problem in Israel. Amos 6 is addressing a problem in humankind. This is a human problem. And so what is this God to do with these people? Since there is no one righteous, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what is God to do? How is God to create a righteous people out of an unrighteous humanity without compromising his standards of righteousness and justice. We can't just choose a people and ignore all the unrighteousness in them. To do so would be unjust. So how does a holy God justify an unholy person? How does God declare 
sinners righteous? Well, I think you know the answer. And that's the thing about the Bible. All the answers are in the back of the book. The answer is Jesus. That God the Son wrapped himself in humanity and Jesus did what Israel didn't. Jesus kept all the righteous requirements of God's law. Jesus lived a sinless life in perfect righteousness and pure justice. And Jesus went to the cross offering his sinless life as the ultimate sacrifice to atone for the unrighteousness of his elect. Jesus Christ absorbed God's judgment on God's people in his sinless body. He took the verdict that belonged to you. Your sentence, your sin was carried out by him on Calvary. And they crushed him. And they killed him. And they laid his dead body in a hole in the ground. Three days later, God the Father raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And he climbed out of the grave in resurrection power with death itself laid to bed. And all those who turn to him in faith are united to him. So that when God looks upon your life, dear Christian, He no longer sees you as unrighteous. You've been joined to Christ. You've been wrapped in the robes of His righteousness. And so when God the Father looks upon your life, He sees the righteousness of His own Son. And He is pleased. And now, since you have been declared righteous, on the basis of what Jesus has done, you and I have the privilege of being who God's people were always meant to be, representatives of this God who declares sinners just on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. We have the privilege of being couriers of this message called the gospel to those who've never known it. We have the privilege of giving ourselves to see Christ formed in others, of being that just society that Israel was called to be, to see the reputation of Christ swell in the earth. We have the privilege of pouring ourselves into others to help them grow in Christ. You see, this is the ultimate luxury. This is the most comfortable couch. This is true ease. Peace with Almighty God through the righteous declaration of God. And you and I are guaranteed one day the Lord will come back. And he will wipe away the tear from every eye and unleash never-ending joy and delight. And everything that we've given up for his sake will be given back to us a hundredfold.
and people from every tribe and language and nation will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and will eat the finest foods. As much cake as we could possibly want. Can't wait for that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have allowed the desires of our hearts to draw us away from you and your holy purpose for our life. That we have become self-absorbed and self-indulgent. And we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, will you give us your Holy Spirit to help us balance the enjoyment of the things that you have made with the spending of these resources for your kingdom. It is such a hard balance to strike and we need wisdom. We admit, Lord, that we have been more often failing in this than we have been getting it right. In a materialistic world, we have become a materialistic people. So have mercy on us. Spare us from falling into the same trap that Israel did those years ago. And Lord, give us grace to see the pleasures of God as more appealing than the pleasures of the world. Make us a generous people who give and serve and who spend and are spent for the glory of Christ. Teach us to live below our means and to give above our station. That the name of Christ would ring out from this church and to this city and to the people who have never known him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have an assurance of God's promise to forgive you. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, where you read, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus.